That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Paul Feinbaum, and my dilemma is I just can't seem to catch a break at ESPN. I mean, I've been there six years, and nobody pays attention to me. I'm, I'm down here at some outpost in the middle of nowhere, and I can't get on. Well, let's see. Since you're currently a regular on no fewer than five ESPN TV shows, including the one with your name and face on it, this dilemma kind of sounds like a figment of your imagination. In fact, it sounds downright Stugatzian of you. You got a giant salary, hours afforded each day to air out your opinions, a seat alongside the best at ESPN to debate the biggest stories in college football, and a prominently featured bucket full of cash on the biggest sports radio show in the world made into your likeness. The only fix for this clearly very invented dilemma is, well, I think regular listeners of the Lebetard show is Stugatz will know what's coming. Fraud! Not even attention from the network! You're on every day! You got your own show! A TV! A radio! Fraud! Where are you guys? Hello? Yo! Chicken time! The commish has spoken. This dilemma is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This week's guest is Paul Feinbaum, the host of the Paul Feinbaum Show, regular contributor to Get Up, Sports Center, First Take, College Game Day, and other ESPN properties, and a New York Times best-selling author. I had not spent a lot of time with Paul, so I love getting the chance to pick his brain about the radio show and its infamous callers. Why he doesn't really mind stirring the pot, in fact, says he loves stirring the pot, especially when it comes to criticizing coaches and teams. How a Sartre-reading intellectual ends up moderating the screaming matches of diehard college football fans and enjoys it. His beef with Drake and who he'd like to help him hide a body. This was a really fun conversation. I think you guys are going to love it. That's what she said. So this is so great because uh, this is a person who I've interviewed a couple times on my show but have never actually gotten a chance to get to know and I don't believe we've ever met in person. So this is why I love doing my podcast because I get to have people on that I find interesting and get to know them a little better. Paul, thank you so much for making time for me. I know uh, despite your uh, dilemma, you are a busy man and, and constantly being pulled in many directions. So I appreciate the time to uh, to get to know you a little better. Let's, uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, you are originally from New York. Uh, you, you rooted for the Yankees, grew up loving baseball, and then your father moves you to Memphis. At what age were you when you became a Southerner? Uh, pretty much about the time I was born, um, because I hate to start something like this um, with a correction. Sarah, I was—I believe I was consummated in New York. I, I was born in Memphis, so <laughs> oh, okay. does that count? Yes. Um, I've got that New York blood in me, but my parents, uh, everyone in my family, uh, my mother, my father, and even my older sister were born in New York, and they moved to to uh, Memphis, Tennessee uh, a couple of months before I was born. And what's funny about that is you're, you're correct for most of the front part of my life. I told people I was from New York uh, all through high school, all through uh, grammar school and high school. And even college, and then finally I changed it one day. I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, uh, early in my career, and I, I told somebody I was from New York, and I literally got uh, punched out. And after that, I <laughs> dropped the New York thing, and I just—I I then began to take my birth certificate 
from Memphis, Tennessee around to prove to everyone that I was a Southerner because I've lived my entire life in the South and uh, I realize uh, you're, you're, most of your life is, is in the Midwest, but uh, if you're from the South, uh, don't don't come down here telling us you're, you're from New York. We don't care. <laughs> so why do you think you said that for so long? Why why did you want to attach yourself to New York instead of the place you were born? Because, because it's all I knew. Um, you know, while a lot of our neighbors were driving down to the, the beach for spring break and for summer vacation, uh, we would get in the uh, family wagon and, and, and go to New York. <laughs> and uh, it was just the weirdest thing. And, and uh, my parents uh, sounded, uh, my mother was from Brooklyn. That's, be- by the way, before Brooklyn was cool. Um, <laughs> and uh, my dad was from the Bronx. And, 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 the, and everyone, everyone that we knew was from New York, even our relatives, uh, our, excuse me, our family, our, our neighbors. Uh, it was kind of a conclave from New York. And and so it was just uh, there was almost uh, there was a little bit of uh, anti-Southern bias in my in my house, um, and so that was the reason. And especially, uh, I mean, how many Yankees fans are roaming the streets of Memphis, Tennessee? Uh, <laughs> but my dad took me to the Yankee Stadium all the time. Uh, I met Phil Rizzuto once. Uh, I, I mean, my hero in life was Mickey Mantle. And it it was contrary to the St. Louis Cardinals or the Atlanta Braves, which were the Southern teams at the time. So you're a, you're a Jewish Yankee fan who associates himself with New York, despite being completely living your life in the South. Did it that manifest itself in feeling like an outsider in school as well, or or did it make you interesting because you you felt different? Well, it, it did affect me because I, I had that mentality, uh, but I, in, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. I went to school at the University of Tennessee, which which did attract a lot of uh, Easterners um, who couldn't get in better schools. And uh, so, uh, but it, it really hit me when I when I spent a little bit of time in Louisiana. But my first real job that I, I did anything was a sports writer in Birmingham, Alabama, and and I'll never forget getting to Birmingham in the early 80s and I was still troubled by it because it had such a uh, it had such a past uh, especially in the civil rights movement and I, I would walk down the streets and and shake my head thinking that uh, everything that we had read about and heard about in the in the history uh, had taken place there so I think it it opened my eyes and, and as a newspaper reporter and then later a columnist I think it helped it it allowed me to develop more of a of an open approach to the schools that I covered. Uh, I didn't uh, have any real af- association with the University of Alabama, even though I covered it. And so therefore, I, I literally, I wrote what I, I felt, not what you were supposed to do. So I, I, I created uh, and attracted a lot of attention in the 80s being objective. Now it would be considered uh, no big deal. But uh, you know, by being objective, that meant, that meant I looked at both sides of an issue versus just wave the, wave the pom-pom uh, for the good old Crimson Tide. So before you got to the 80s and the sports coverage, you got a degree in political science and you covered student government for the campus newspaper. Um, I read that your parents were involved in, in canvassing for political parties. Yep. And so you grew up sort of invested in that sort of stuff. Why did you decide to move away from that? What became uninteresting to you about covering news or science, political science? Well, I loved it. Um, and yes, I mean, we were very politically active. And uh, while most of my friends were reading about sports heroes, I was absorbed in 
Watergate, and uh, which really, uh, I mean, everyone of my era has has the same story. But uh, reading about uh, Watergate and and uh, you know following uh, Woodward and Bernstein inspired my career, and I, I wanted to to get into that. I wanted to cover uh, politics. I wanted to uh, be an investigative reporter. However, early on, I realized uh, for some reason that most of it happened at Tennessee. That it just it, it was not uh, as, as as simple. Uh, sports was easier to to uh, to write about, to talk about. People cared, and uh, so I gravitated to sports uh, toward the end of my school uh, tenure. I, I I literally walked down to the school newspaper one day and and uh, volunteered for a job. And and after a couple of weeks of of uh, the student government, I got into sports, and I, I realized people really like sports down here in the South. <laughs> so I, uh, uh, that, that's where I went. And and I, even though they're, uh, even though I'm still fascinated by politics and and, and watch the cable networks uh, talking about politics more than I do even the, the network that I work for, um, I I chose that path versus uh, you know being a political reporter. You mentioned your willingness to be a bit of a contrarian or at least, you know, call it how you see it. And that manifested itself like pretty much right away as you were banned from traveling with the basketball team <laughs> at Tennessee when you started covering them. True. Um, I, 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 I spent my, my, my last year in college, uh, the team was terrible. Uh, the previous year they had been very good. Uh, they had had ironically two New Yorkers on the team, Ernie Grunfeld, uh, who we obviously know from, uh, his NFL GM days, and, and, a, and a kid from Brooklyn named Bernard King, and uh, they won the SEC. And the next year, they were they were they were miserable. Uh, and I covered the, a, a game one weekend. Uh, they lost a home game, I think, to uh, Georgia, which had been in last place. And I said, you know, I've got to figure out a way to to address this head on. So I wrote uh, an obituary uh, in the form uh, a column in the form <laughs> of an obituary, saying the Tennessee basketball team died Saturday night. It was 88 years old, just, you know, just like you would read. Uh, and I put, we put black, uh, black border around it. And the headline was Vols 1908 to 1978. And, uh, there was an interim coach there. The, the head coach, uh, had, had taken a leave of absence and the interim coach called me uh, into his office and began hurling, uh, expletives at me. And, and literally he grabbed me too. I mean, nowadays Whoa. it would have been a, a big deal. It would yeah. have been the lead story on sports center. Um, uh, and then he, uh, he banned me from traveling with the team. So, uh, it became uh, a big deal. Uh, but I, yeah, I, in, instead of finding out that I didn't like the confrontation, I, I found that I had a, a pretty voracious appetite for it. And I think it inspired <laughs> me to go on and continue to try to, uh, upset coaches, uh, dispositions. So in 79, you go to Alabama to work at the Birmingham Post Herald. Was that your first official sports gig? I had spent uh, a couple of months, about a year in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, Sarah, when I uh, when I got out of school, uh, I wasn't exactly what they would call a five star prospect. Uh, I had two offers. <laughs> uh, I had an offer from the Bristol Herald Courier. Uh, that was, that's on the the Bristol, Virginia, Tennessee border, and, and I only got that because uh, a friend of a friend of a friend uh, put in a good word for me. And then I had an offer from Shreveport. And I just felt like I needed to get away. I was in a relationship, uh, and I, I knew – don't ask me how I knew this, but if, I knew if I'd stayed in East Tennessee, I'd probably get married and uh, spend the rest of my life there. And I, I don't know why. I just took the other offer. Of course, the girl immediately broke up with me. And <laughs> uh, and I, uh, I, I spent about a year there, and then I got the job in Birmingham. Uh, but I, I still had this hankering for, for more. Even I never thought I would be in Birmingham 
for uh, most of my career, but uh, it, it worked out really well. But yeah, I, I, I started kind of like a bull in the china shop, uh, trying to. I covered Bear Bryant his last two years, and uh, even found myself being critical of uh, Bear Bryant. Hmm. Uh, so then when did you start with the radio show? The first show was called Fussing with Feinbaum, which sounds uh, predicated on the idea that you like to argue and you enjoyed yeah. a back and forth. Uh, that was 1984. Was that the first radio you did? Yeah. And uh, you know, somebody needed a guy. The host of the show also did NASCAR. So he would fly to Daytona every week. So he needed somebody to fill in uh, that one that one night. And I didn't realize that you were supposed to, you know, be calm and collected. Uh, I mean, I, I, I was fiery and argued with people and screamed at people and called people idiots. I mean, basically, uh, that if, if I had done, if I had uh, continued with that, I would be, I would, I would replace, I would be replacing Stephen A. Smith right now. Right. And uh, but I didn't understand. I didn't realize there was that much money in it. Um, and <laughs> it, uh, it just it developed. And what happened was the uh, when we got to football season, that uh, that show led into the, the Alabama football coaches show. And it, it happened to be the first year that Alabama had a losing record in 25 years. And the coach did not like me firing up the masses going into his show. And he got me fired um, after about a year of which, but I got another job uh, the next day at the, at the Auburn station because I got fired at the Alabama station. And, <laughs> and I began to realize there was, there was money to be made uh, in this Auburn Alabama rivalry. Were there aspirations at that point to do television as well? No, uh, no, I, I never thought about television. In fact, as a hardened uh, sports writer uh, who may have dabbled in radio, we hated people on television. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we thought they were, uh, they were an inferior class of being, and uh, I wouldn't have caught my, caught, be caught dead in a television studio back then. Besides, I, I was... I, even even early in my life, I was balding and a little pudgy, and and I didn't think uh, I was probably ever going to be cut out for for <laughs> for anything. So yeah, it it, it just kept going. And uh, but but no, I never thought about television. Drake once said in an argument with you that you look like his high school history teacher. Um, so there's this vibe around sports of the demand that someone has played. Charles Barkley once criticized you for not having played. Um, I get it a lot as a woman, even though I'm usually the only Division One athlete in anything I'm participating <laughs> in, while all the men are just, you know, journalists or whatever. Um, did you have a feeling at any point when you were deciding that this business was for you that the way that you looked or your your presumed lack of athletic ability, whether that's true or not, would affect your ability to do the job? Well, first of all, Sarah, I, I find it interesting that uh, I was the first uh, – person that drake attacked in the sports world this was before he, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he declared war uh, against you fired Golden him State. up he was just a mild-mannered yeah, I mean, canadian I mean, and then he got yeah, to I mean, you and you you turned him into a life of crime what happened was uh not to digress but uh, drake uh, has always been a jock sniffer and <laughs> he uh he in in 2014 uh, or 13 uh, declared himself to be the biggest Johnny Manziel fan in the world, and I was very critical of Manziel. So someone uh, in Bristol put us together uh, in a debate <laughs> on <Brilliant>. Sports Center, <laughs> uh, and yeah, I was I was a little bit intimidated. I mean, first of all, I, I wasn't one hundred percent sure who he was at the time, um, and he was he was successful, but he was nothing like he he is today. So we we went at it, and and that's when and when when he had nothing 
left intellectually, he he pulled that brilliant line out of his uh, sixth grade uh, <laughs> repertoire to 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 make me look like uh, the stern the stern teacher from from way back when. Um, back to your question, Sarah. Uh, I've never let that bother me. Um, I to me, I, I I've had it my entire life. People have 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 said you have no right. To say that, um, and, and I just laugh. Um, yeah, I, I, my wife is a physician, and uh, the, you know you don't have to be a medical doctor to be able to construct a sentence and speak intelligently uh, about medicine. The same for for being a lawyer. Now, I realize there are a lot of specialties, and if you're on network television today, sometimes you you, you are a, a doctor or a lawyer, but. Um, yeah, does every uh, does every does a music uh, credit cri- critic at the New York Times? I mean, has has he or she been uh, you know first chair in, in, in a symphony? Probably not. Right. Uh, it's just a matter of being able to listen and, and, and differentiate. So I've always found that to be lame. Um, it 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 got worse as I uh, became more prominent in in television. Quite frankly, of course, uh, even. Even radio and, and, uh, and writing, much easier for people to sort of assume whatever they want about how you look behind behind the air. Yeah. No, uh, but when I uh, – I mean, yeah, I, I, I didn't really take it all that seriously because I guess in, in, in writing a newspaper column, you had the last word. Um, but on te- you know, once, I, once I went up the, the tree a little bit, uh, I found it to be fairly difficult uh, to be sitting with uh, a number of former athletes – because quite often they just don't care what anyone else thinks, uh, mm. especially uh, someone who never played the game, so to speak. I meant to ask you earlier: Did you play sports growing up just for fun, or or at school? Yeah, I did. I mean, I loved I loved uh, I loved sports. I mean, I played. I mean, I was I was you know predictably terrible, um, <laughs> but but I played every sport: baseball, uh, basketball, uh, football, golf. I mean, I, I mean, I, I was a, I, I did play sports, but I'm not sure uh, I excelled in any of them. Maybe basketball was my uh, my only decent sport because I, I had a pretty good sh- uh, jump shot. But uh, other than that, I was a, a terrible athlete. Time for a quick break, and then more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. What if you had your own personal recruiter to help you find a better job? ZipRecruiter's technology can do just that for you. Just download the ZipRecruiter job search app, let it know what kind of jobs you're interested in, and its technology starts doing the work. The ZipRecruiter app finds jobs you'll like and puts your profile in front of employers who may be looking for someone like you. If an employer likes your profile, ZipRecruiter lets you know. So if you're interested in the job, you can apply. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated job search app. And based on a third-party survey, 7 out of 10 people who found a new job on ZipRecruiter increased their salaries. These are the results of a 2017 U.S. survey of over 500 ZipRecruiter users who got hired for a job they found on ZipRecruiter. My listeners should download the free ZipRecruiter job search app today and let the power of technology work for you. Don't wait. The sooner you download the free ZipRecruiter job search app, the sooner it can help you find a better job. That's what she said. All right, back to back to the writing. So, um, in two thousand one, you get to the Mobile Press Register. Uh, you you write there till twenty ten. You start writing for Sports Illustrated. So you've got a, a whole slew of different writing gigs alongside your radio career, which at this point has become sort of the the hot spot for college football and SEC uh, radio. Was that sort of at that point? Did that feel like the pinnacle to you? Was there always an aspiration or an ambition to to get bigger than that, or did it feel like you had cornered the market and this was this was enough? 
When I, within a year or two of the beginning of my career, I, I really felt like I had to be at the New York Times by the time I was 30. I, I thought I was good enough as a, as a newspaper reporter. And, you know, confluence of things happened, and obviously I never got there. Uh, so when I walked in uh, at the time, uh, it was this, the Time Life Building in Manhattan, and they've later moved and been sold. I, I said, this is amazing. Uh, and I, I was hired by Sports Illustrated, but I, I realized pretty quickly this was not the Sports Illustrated that I grew up reading. Mm. Um, it was a shell of itself. Uh, it did not have the reach or residence that uh, it, it did when, when all of my favorite writers growing up, like Dan Jenkins, wrote there. I did it a couple of years, and I think I did it primarily just you know, for myself because I don't know anyone else who cared that I did it. Um, and then ultimately, I walked away uh, around the time that I, I came to ESPN. And, and, and even here, uh, people ask me, do you want to write for the magazine? And I really didn't. Uh, I, I was pretty well done with writing. And, and unlike a lot of people, I, I was good with it. Uh, I had done it for a long time. Uh, but I knew that uh, I needed to put my energies into something else. But I, I still have dabbled in it. In fact, last year, Sarah, uh, Time Magazine did a uh, cover story on the South, and they wanted me to write one of those essays that nobody reads. Um, <laughs> but it was on sports in the South. And, and I was so nervous. I mean, this is Time Magazine, a cover story. And I spent uh, about two or three weeks on it, and they changed literally every word. Um, <laughs> but it didn't matter. Uh, I still got the cover framed with my name on it. And it was, it was, I said, you know, this might be the time to walk away. So yeah. I don't think there is uh, any amount of uh, prestige or money that could convince me to, to write again. Uh, Not just, the New York just, Times. Um, I, I think I would turn down the Times at this point. Really? Uh, uh, hmm. I, I just don't. Uh, I did a book a couple of years ago with Gene Wojciechowski, and it was a blast. Um, and, uh, but I, I really, uh, my interests are, are, are in different places now. Yeah. The practice of writing is a lot. It, 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 um, it's, and it's, it's, it's isolating and, and maybe. And, uh, and Sarah, remember I wrote in an era without Twitter. Um, so you could take your time about, you, you didn't have to, uh, do all the things that, that, the, that, that everyone has to do now it's a much more difficult it's a i think it's far more difficult to be a writer today um because uh i mean i really would i i, I could spend time and energy and and weeks if i wanted on a project and, and now it's it's virtually impossible right so what was the biggest turning point you think in in becoming a part of espn a couple of things happened uh stop me if this goes over like an hour and a half but uh, <laughs> Uh, in, in 2011, uh, on our radio show, uh, in January of 2011, we got a call from a guy who was bitter that Alabama had blown a 24-point lead to Auburn, and he was bitter about Cam Newton getting away with what he felt like uh, well, Auburn had gotten away with cheating. And at the end of the conversation, he says, well, I'll tell you what I did last week. Uh, I poisoned the two tumors tree, the tumors trees at Auburn with Spike ADF. It's a, it's a herbicide. Uh, a couple weeks later, it came out that this guy, who, whose real name was Harvey Updike, had had, had killed these. Uh, it took a while, but he killed these two trees that were iconic. That led to a thirty for thirty, uh, which was written uh, by by Joe Tessitore and Bruce Feldman, that later aired, uh, called "Roll Tide, War Eagle." That led. I will finish the story in a second. To a two thousand, a December two thousand and twelve. 5,000-word profile of me in the New Yorker magazine. And 
a lot of the audience may know the magazine, but in, in about three streets in New York, it is the most important thing in the world. As a result of that, literally the next day, I got a, a, a call from a literary agent. This is all the things that you dream about. Uh, ended up doing a book that, uh, you know, we, we had 11 publishers uh, after me, and that led to ESPN. In the, in the midst of it all, uh, I, 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 Sirius XM, our show had started airing on Sirius um, from Birmingham. Uh, I'd hired an agent uh, at CAA. Uh, Nick Kahn, and he had uh, he had called John Skipper and said, "Listen, I think I've got somebody that may be interesting to ESPN." And John said, "Well, yeah, yeah never heard of him." Um, <laughs> when the New Yorker magazine came out, Skipper decided that day to hire me. So, um, long story short, that was really how I, I went from regional radio uh, with a little bit of uh, of a flavor on on the national scene with SI and, and Sirius XM to getting the job I did in, in 2013. So Harvey Updike, the man who poisoned the trees, uh, the details yep. came out about him, uh, his obsession with Alabama. His kids were named Bear Bryant and Crimson Tide, and he had plans to name another one Alabama until his wife <laughs> wouldn't let him. Um, but in that profile, the King of the South and the New Yorker, you said you liked him. Um, and I was kind of taken aback by that. I understand you maybe understanding somebody's passion for a team or for football, but um, someone who would go to that extent and to, to ruin something historic and great over football, uh, I was surprised that you had an affinity for him. Well, uh, some of it may have been uh, you know, because he, he helped launch my career. <laughs> but, <laughs> Very self-serving. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. You know, Sarah, here's, the, here's where I, I chime in on that. Um, I, I am a, a, an advocate for the underdog, especially – those who are not heard very often. And I realize uh, he committed a, a crime and uh, he served time. I, I went to see him uh, his final day in jail. And he, in many conversations, I, I don't think did it maliciously. And you know, before, you, before you, you react, he told me once, uh, and, and, I, and I think he had serious mental issues, okay? Mm. <laughs> but he did it for uh he told me once i did this for nick saban i said what he said no i i I had to do it because saban should not have lost to auburn that day auburn cheated and i had to do it for him and and he i mean listen we've seen movies about people like this uh someone told me to do it i genuinely believe that that he believed that as crazy as that sounds so uh, i'm not saying i I like him it it turned out that I, i by the end of it all i really found myself not liking him because that day in prison he uh he had not he had not learned a thing uh right. he was wearing roll tide uh war, uh on, on his sleeve he had a war damn uh you know roll damn tide uh, uh tattoo he couldn't stop talking about poisoning the tree uh so the the penal system really didn't help him um but i i do i i do support people that 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 are that are not heard from very often, and 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 they're, you know, and you, you have a million ways to describe that, but that that's that, that's why I said what I did about him. The story also talked about your office having a painting, and I'm curious if it's still there. You're Indiana Jones, surrounded by a half a dozen SEC coaches. You've got your your whip up, and it looks like they're all waiting for you to bring the hammer down. Is that still in your office? Uh, we moved that from my, uh, I used to be uh, my, at my radio office, but since I no longer have a radio office, I've moved it home. Um, 
yeah, ESPN has given me a mailbox here, uh, no office. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, somebody did that. It, it was more of a satire. Um, and, yeah, I don't, I don't take what I do all that seriously. Uh, I, I know what, pe- what has been said about me. I, I know what people have written and whatever articles have been done. But uh, I, I that that to me was just something that I would look at and laugh at because I I, I do question the influence of people in my position uh, a lot more than uh, than I think some of my colleagues who genuinely believe that uh, their word is uh, is affecting mankind. I, I don't. I'm a I'm a sports talk show host who whose program happens to be seen on television, and, I, and I'm fortunate enough to appear in various forums. Uh, I take what I do very seriously, but I, I don't really take myself that seriously. Right. And, you know, it seems like you have the same attitude at times about coaches and, and, and football programs, right? This is what you base your living off of, but you understand the, the, the potential damages of the entitlement of, of raising people up to a level, um, you know, godlike status. And we saw it happen at Penn State or Baylor or wherever else. Um, what makes you, you know, you mentioned earlier, you, you like the confrontation. You don't mind being critical of people. Um, what is it about you that doesn't mind being literally threatened by opposing fan bases when you were writing uh, for newspapers back in the day or, or, you know, wondering whether, whether coaches are, you know, willing to give you or others access because of the things you say? What, what makes you not worry and be able to roll that off your shoulder? Sarah, I, I think it goes all the way back to growing up. Um, and, and I, I would defer maybe to a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist <laughs> to, to dig deep in. But yeah, I, I grew up uh, my, I, as, as we talked in the in the beginning. Uh, you know, the product of these two New Yorkers. Unfortunately for me, um, uh, my dad died when I was 15, and when that happened. Uh, my life changed dramatically, and and the things that probably I, I would have cared about, I quit caring about. I saw suddenly how how people reacted, and all these things that were there were no longer there. Uh, our, the friends that we had disappeared. Everyone, uh, you know, can't, comes up to you at the funeral and looks you in the eye and talks about how 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 badly they feel, and then the next week they disappear. And and for some reason, uh, that moment, uh, I became a little more hardened to to almost everything. Uh, perhaps to a fault, but especially uh, in in what I did for a living, um, I, I loved what I uh, what I did and what I continue to do. But but I but I took a fairly cynical view of the people uh, that 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 run the sports and and that uh, are the figures in the sport. And and I don't and, and maybe some of it came from. Uh, my cynicism of, of, of politics and government uh, in my in my formative years, but but I, I I never liked being lied to, and I found myself in in my newspaper career being constantly lied to uh, by by coaches, by athletic directors, uh, and that that continued to grow, and 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 I, I never could, uh, and, and maybe it was because uh, of of something in my youth with my with a single mom. Uh, maybe her attitude because she was very much, uh, uh, you know, a straight shooter being from Brooklyn uh, that I, I think, I think that's where it, it that, that's where it's, it started and it's, it's never changed. Uh, I mean, I, to this day, uh, I, I just can't handle it. And even though I, I understand the hypocrisy of, of, of sports and, and the partnerships of sports, 
uh, I have a, that is where I have the most difficult uh, time, especially when somebody tries to tell people like us what we can say and what we can't say. So is there ever a, a internal conflict of understanding the, you know, sort of systems in place with NCAA and then that's how you make a living? You know, you're, you, you, you expressed cynicism in the whole thing, um, but then that's what you focus your time and, and effort on. Yeah, it's a conflict um, because I was uh, I was at a, a conference meeting last week, and the head coach at LSU, uh, Will Wade, uh, got up, and he's the one that's been caught on FBI wiretaps, wiretaps saying these things that would clearly indicate that he was he was breaking rules, and and, and he still has a job, and and that concerns me because uh, a lot of my early days of, of journalism were dealing with investigative reporting in, into uh, transgressions. And, and I think a lot of people just shake it off and say, well, college athletics, it's, it's a joke, Nobody, especially basketball. They're all pros. And, and, and then I, I was walking around that night talking to various coaches in, in the lobby, and I asked one point blank, I said, how bad is it? And he said, it's pretty bad, meaning uh, illegalities. Um, but I, I don't think uh, – yeah, I, I still care about stuff like that, even though – Sarah, I'm fully aware uh, this is a billion-dollar industry and, and their partnerships at every level, and the fans, quite frankly, don't really care. Um, but but I, I, I've, I've never been able to uh, excise that or expurgate that from, from my system. Uh, and maybe maybe it's to my uh, strength or maybe it's, it's to my detriment, but, but that's who I am. We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. TSO is the official watch of the NBA. Each one of Tissot's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury. This graduation season, get the NBA fan in your life a Tissot watch. The Tissot Chrono XL is a great watch for those looking for a sporty chronograph with Swiss technology at an unbeatable price. Shop now at us.tissotshop.com. That's what she said. You at one point uh, in a Tennessee football story used a line from a farewell to arms. You once... (laughs) Uh, talked about a long-winded caller inspiring you to mention Sartre's no exit. You are uh, you are this you know erudite man who's caught up in college football talk. And by the way, in, in Sartre, you know hell is other people. That's how I usually feel about callers when I do my own radio show. So I'm <laughs> I'm I'm wondering uh, how you decided that the tenor of your show at times would be juggling sort of ranting hysterical fans who are you know have lost all perspective on, on what football is and in comparison to the rest of life, wishing other fan bases to get cancer and other things like that. It feels like a mismatch to me. Yeah, it is. Um, but, but, but I think it started out being in, being in a small market, Sarah. Uh, and you know, we, uh, you know, we weren't able to get the A-list guests, um, that ESPN can, uh, at the snap of a, of a, of a, of a finger. So, yeah, with a lot of time to fill, I began to find this connection with callers, and I got to know them. Uh, we would have uh, parties, we would we would have get-togethers, and, and, and I, I think I decided somewhere along the way that this was going to be a caller-driven show where I was the ringmaster, but the callers were the show, and that that got bigger and bigger. And even when you have the the people like Updike uh, who call in, and 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 you have the, the what you mentioned a minute ago was one of the darker moments in the show's history. We had a a caller that that had cancer, an Alabama fan, 
Uh, and he, he finally died of cancer. Uh, he called every day. I gave the eulogy at his funeral, and it was really one of the sadder moments in the show's history. And this Auburn guy called in and uh, who hated the, the Alabama guy. And instead of offering his condolences, he said, hey, he said, karma's a bitch. He said he got what he deserved. And uh, it was the only time in the show's history we gave a permanent ban. Um, because, I mean, I just didn't, uh, it, as, uh, even though I'll let anything go, I, I, that was beyond the pale. But to me, uh, people have a right to be heard. And, and, I, and I'm not here criticizing what I do because I realize I work for ESPN and the show is to, distributed by ESPN Radio. But I don't think a lot of the, the bigger shows give the average fan a voice. And I think our show did that very well. And, and I, I have never claimed to be the best talk show host or even close to it. I've never said we have, had, uh, we have the best guests. But, but I, will, I will argue with any, anyone that we have the best callers. And um, I, wor- I worried about that when we went to ESPN because I didn't know if, 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 we, would, uh, if we could do it. And then uh, Alabama lost uh, a game one day, uh, I think it was the Ohio State game in the in the in the 2014 playoffs, and this lady named Phyllis from Mulga, Alabama, called, and she reacted to Colin Cowherd uh, saying that Nick Saban was done. And the next thing uh, I know, it, it literally was on a reel on Sports Center for for mm-hmm. 12 straight hours. I believe you mean Colin uh, Cowherd. Yeah, and I realized then maybe <laughs> maybe we really did have something. Um, a couple of uh, last fall, uh, we had another uh, lady, uh, a woman named Tammy. Uh, she was, she was our most famous Auburn caller. She would scream and holler and create havoc. She was killed with her granddaughter in an accident. And on, on a Friday night, Sarah, before a college football weekend in November, we broke the news. And for two hours, that's all we talked about. And and I I, I will say that's unique. Uh, I th- I think this is unique uh, in, in in broadcasting. And it, it's of all the things that I've done and of all the things that I probably will ever do, it's the thing I'm proudest of the most. Uh, and, and I think that's part of the reason why I was hired for this job, because when the SEC network started, they were looking for a connection. Now, I wonder sometimes if the executives at ESPN had ever heard the show. Um, <laughs> but uh, at least for now, they're stuck with me. You know, um Tammy's death and sort of the way the people rallied around her showed that it becomes quite a community and it's not just about hearing your own voice, but I think there is. So it was, it reminds me of Real Housewives, which I don't watch anymore. It, it, it jumped the shark for me when the cast members watched the old seasons and then when they were on the show, they sort of made it their goal to be more dramatic and more incensed at everything, more crazy at every turn. And I wondered, do the people who have established themselves and, and made a name for themselves, Phyllis or Legend or someone like that, does somebody arrive now and skip the organic getting to know you stage and just try to be the next best caller? And does it become then this cacophony of, of rage at all times without like really the root foundation of it? It, it can be. Uh, the best part about what happens now is that there, there, we have an established group. Uh, I'm not trying to uh, compare this to prison or anything, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think we have a so-called prison gang on the show. And when somebody tries that uh, and and the rest of us don't like it, we basically just throw the person overboard. Um, <laughs> but, but but yeah, it, it's hard to come into the show uh, talking that loudly. And 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 one thing, uh, it's a good thing to have. But as the show has gotten uh, more prominent and distributed to more people, uh, you end up getting more fan bases. But to me, that's what makes it unique. Um, and I'm sure my friends at ESPN Audio don't want to hear what I'm about to say. 
um, and I realize that uh, your show is different, uh, but a lot of t- a lot of a lot of shows, and we have uh, clearly. I mean, you mentioned Stu Gotts and Lebertard. I mean, you wouldn't want to put you know put him in a box, but I mean, there have been times at ESPN Radio when a lot of the shows did sound alike mm-hmm. uh, and talked about the same things, and I think we're. Where we 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 come in is it, it is a little bit different, um, and, and because, because primarily because of the callers and and you know, it, you know I've had I've had people in the industry criticize me saying oh, he's just a lazy talk show host uh, he just walks in flips on the switch and lets lets a bunch of yahoos rant but uh, you know I, I disagree with that um, yeah you know, I, I I care what they're saying um, and 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 I think you have to listen you know it. You just can't let people ramble without some accountability. Um, but it, it's tough. Uh, it's tough, you know, walking into uh, cell block B on the Fine Bomb Show and, and taking <laughs> over. I mean, there's a, there are there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of knives out if if you don't do it the right way. Well, yeah, you have to worry, of course, about you know vulgarity or violating FCC rules, uh, things like that. People often delve into politics or. Uh, you know, there's there's certainly people that cross the line in terms of, of racism or homophobia. Uh, there are people that call your show when they're in the middle of having a heart attack. Yep. I mean, you really you become a bit of a therapist for these people. Um, but one of them that I that I listened to that I was so moved by was Jay from Huntsville, which I know you've oh. replayed several times. And and the long and short of his of his story was just goes to show anything can happen to a former racist is, is one of the last things he said in, in, in that call. Um, first of all, did you ever consider writing the book that you told him that story would make such a good book? And and also, does that kind of catharsis feel like it makes worth some of the other garbage you got to muddle through? Yeah, the long and short of that is that we uh, uh, in 2008, we decided to do a show on, on Martin Luther King's birthday, uh, honoring Dr. King uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. That was interesting because, uh, you know, they're, they're, everyone even then was still not on board and uh and it, it, it took off, and toward the end of the show, a guy called in, uh, and, and he said, he said uh, his opening line was, he said, uh, my grandfather was in the Klan, my father was in the Klan. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, 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 I, I mean, my hand, Sarah, was so close to the button. We, I, I'm, I, said, I said to myself, I'm not going to put up with this. And he began telling a story, uh, and I'll tell it very quickly, but uh, he, went in the, he went to Vietnam, uh, an African-American from Detroit was his uh, bunkmate. He said they got into fights every day. They clashed. They finally became best friends in, 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 in Vietnam. Uh, he hired uh, him. Uh, the other guy went back to school and then hired him. And the story ended uh, by uh, Jay from Huntsville saying, and, and next, uh, next week, uh, next Monday night, uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll cel- I'll, I'll celebrate uh, his, his sister. I'll celebrate my 31st wedding anniversary, meaning – for those who probably missed my speeding through the story, that this white racist son of the Klan uh, ended up marrying an African-American uh, who was the, the sister of his uh, best friend. And the story ended, I, I was speechless. I, uh, we, were, we were given some sort of an award that year by Columbia, uh, by the Columbia uh, School of Journalism, and I, I made the presentation there and played the tape. And as the, as the beginning of that call started, uh, a lot of the people, uh, HR people from the Times and the Post and uh, various uh, schools were, were sneering at me. Here, who is this guy from Birmingham, Alabama, mm-hmm. playing this Klan tape? And by the end, they were all in tears. And, I, and uh, would, I, would I have done the book on the guy? Uh, yeah, but I never heard from him again. Oh, so, uh, oh wow. 
I think it would have been a uh, a can't miss book and and, and Hollywood movie. Um, Not too but, late. Someone someone he, can go on the hunt. I'm sure he never called, and I've I've had countless producers. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, Bill uh, 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 there were, there was a writer from the New York. Uh, Bill Roden was in the was in the room that day and asked me about it. He wanted to write about it. Uh, I, even this year, we replayed it on on King's birthday, Doctor King's birthday, and I had a Hollywood guy call me, and I, I just you know, like I wanted to tell him, "You're not the first producer right. from Hollywood that's <laughs> called me," um, but. Yeah, we we've we've never found the guy. Yeah, um, another memorable uh, call, or I guess guest was uh, you helped a politician get get a, a big jump in votes after he appeared on your show and and was very football savvy. So that started a series of politicians thinking, "I'm going to go on the Feinbaum show and get the football vote." But Mitt Romney came on and <laughs> did not know who Nick Saban was, aka Jesus. This must have been a remarkable yeah, moment. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine was was his general counsel, and he said, "I want to get Romney on before the uh, Super Tuesday, uh, which was all the southern states." And I said, "Listen, I don't want to talk to Mitt Romney, but you know, prepare him. Just let him. You know, we'll have a football conversation." And Alabama had just won the national championship, and when I brought up uh, Alabama, he could not come up with Nick. I said, uh, "I know you're really impressed with the coach." He said, "Oh yeah, very, very great coach." <laughs> I mean, he, you know, Mitt Romney. Could not name Nick Saban. What was funny, though, uh, the the governor uh, who we got elected, the only reason we had him on, Sarah, was he had been Bear Bryant's dermatologist. <laughs> and he showed up in the studio at 1% in the vote. He, he came on, and we spent the entire hour talking about, you know, treating Bear Bryant for uh, for sunspots or moles or whatever <laughs> he he got in the primary he got in the runoff won the election he re, he was reelected and he ended up uh being run out of office after having an affair with his uh secretary or, or uh administrative assistant um but uh I, I i now stay away from politicians uh because uh it, it's just not worth it uh today i've, I've had people offer uh President Trump, others, because of where we are and you know where our base is, mm-hmm. and it's I just can't do it, it, it uh, because it, it's not because of the audience and I did, I did our, our audience has been described as uh, uh, heavily right wing because of the concentration of states that you know we are predominant in, but it doesn't matter. Um, it's I have sworn off politics, even though I care deeply about politics. I thought it was I didn't think it was an exception. But uh, when when Clemson went to the White House uh, and, and, and President Trump served them fast food, mm-hmm. uh, Christine Brennan wrote about it the, the next day in the in USA Today. I thought it was a legitimate sports story. And the, the attacks on Christine afterwards were some of the most vicious that I have heard in my in my years of, of doing this. And uh uh, so in the in the future, I try to avoid it. I, I have a friend who was elected to the Senate. Uh, it was one of the biggest upsets in, in Senate history. Uh, the, the Democratic senator from Alabama, Doug Jones, he mm-hmm. beat Roy Moore, the judge right. that uh, was accused of uh, all kinds of uh, you know, uh, uh, you know terrible pedophilia. attacks yeah. on women and ped- pedophilia. And, and he he uh, it, it was like such a big story. And he he texted me the next day, so I'd love to come on the show. And uh, thank everyone. I said no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he, he was in demand by every 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 program <laughs> in the country. But I, I said I, I cannot violate. Uh, I mean, it, you know, let's just stay neutral and and avoid politics at all costs. The uh, Levitard Show has a Paul Fine bucket. 
uh, when you first heard of it and saw it, what was your reaction? I thought it was pretty funny, and then finally uh, they tried to get me on one day, and I was I was traveling, uh, and I believe that uh, there's some uh, there's some I know I just signed something with uh, with, with some contract. Apparently they're they're going to start marketing it, so uh, I'm all for it. Uh, I don't know Dan very well. Um, but I thought the idea of that program making fun of me was just downright hilarious. I mean, I, I wish every show on ESPN would make fun of me. Well, it feels like if all the shows got together and had a good sense of humor, and like you and Dan both always say, you don't take yourselves too seriously. You know, you take your job seriously, but you don't take yourself too seriously. Um, it would it would be more fun, right? If, if all the shows were willing to do well, that. It, um, it started. Someone called in. Uh, it was a Stu Gotts question, and he said. Uh, you know, what did you think of what Stu Gott said about you? And I said, I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't know who you're, what you're talking about. What's <laughs> a Stu Gotts? And that became that that started the bit, and they replayed right. it uh, as you can imagine, and uh, we 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 developed uh, you know a, a friendly feud that uh, turned into <laughs> a fine bucket. And and turned into Stu Gotts shaving his head and and dressing yeah, up his exactly. for for us. And I'm still not really sure who Stu Gotts is. <laughs> None of us are. It's 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 he's a mystery. <laughs> he's a real mystery. Um, hey, before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. It's time for the Spanish Inquisition, brought to you by Tiso. Tiso, the official watch of the NBA. Shop at us.tsoshop.com. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition. That's right. The 10 questions everybody gets asked and nobody expects. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Desert Island album would be, uh, well, it's not a desert island, but I'm going to go with Hotel California because I think there's a picture of the Desert Inn on the cover. There you go. Uh, Number two, habit or quality you have that you think has most contributed to your success? Uh, Just outright insecurity. (laughs) What? Come on. <laughs> Insecurity I, would send you away from conflict, not toward it. Well, I, I think it's uh, I think it's it, it's a lot of things, but it would be the fear of failure. Um, I think that started uh, when, you know, in my teens with the tragedy that I encountered. And I think since then, uh, you know, I've, I've, I, it sounds like a, it sounds like a Nick Saban speech after a loss. But uh, it's just the the fear of complacency. I think probably a little right. bit better described than insecurity. But it's it's all of these things uh, combined. But I I think if I could add if I could add one more thing, it's being the son of a Jewish Brooklyn mom. <laughs> you know, you mentioned it was based on the tragedy. Did you feel like because of your father's death, you were afraid of failure because you had so much you wanted to live up to in his stead, or why? How did you connect those two? I, I think it's a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's the uh, it was just a re- you know a lot a lot of us go through reality checks uh, throughout our life but at 15 uh having the person i was closest to taken away from me to, uh, just seeing the world as a, suddenly as an adult and and i had an older sister um but it was one of those things that that did make me more aware though and i, I don't mean to go off on another tangent in the middle of the spanish inquisition <laughs> but but i i did think it helped me understand uh, especially women more because you know living with a mom uh, who was a single mom and an older sister, and then marrying a very strong woman who was a physician who had had a lot of things, uh, like all of uh, like all women uh, have, to, have have had to encounter. Uh, I, I think it toughened me up uh, and, and and opened my eyes a, a lot more to the way the world really is, not the way we we want to act like it is. Right. 
Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Not making it to the New York Times by the age I was 30. It's never too late, though. Now, you, now, you're, now you're so big time, you'd turn them down. So there well, you go. yeah, but, but uh, I was obsessed with that. Uh, I, I felt really? like I had to get there. Um, and, uh, you know, thank goodness I didn't. There's no telling <laughs> what I would be doing today if I had, if I had fulfilled my dreams. That's right. Uh, careful what you wish for. You might get it, as they say. Um, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Uh, sadly, no. Uh, I, I was a pretty passive kid growing up, uh, and, and I was probably because I was unathletic. Nobody really felt like it would even be fair. <laughs> uh, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Barack Obama. It'd be interesting. I- I just find his life to be so fascinating. Uh, I mean, I watched him the other night, or maybe it was last night or whenever it was, at, at, the, at the Raptors game. Uh, I just want to be that cool for one day. <laughs> right? Uh, agreed on that. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? <sighs> Probably, um, that's a question. I'll tell you what, that's a good question because I'm I'm struggling for – an immediate answer um, because uh, I don't embarrass easily. I think maybe the, <laughs> the, the uh, that's surprising because you think insecurity would, would t- trend toward, you know, always being worried that something that you don't look right. Yeah. I mean, something. I think, I think just uh, maybe I was on college game day, uh, my uh, first year at ESPN and they came to me and I literally couldn't string a sentence together. Um, and, and I, and I just kept fighting my way through it, but there was nothing, uh, there was nothing I could do. I mean, I was fairly embarrassed by, by being humiliated in front of 2 million people. <laughs> uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Probably, uh, I'm always, I'm, I'm kind of a stickler for attention to detail, uh, because, you know, no matter how hard I, I try to prepare for something, I never feel like I've done it enough. Mm. So, uh, I, I think that is a, a really big part of success is being prepared and, and not ever being surprised. And I still find myself, uh, especially, uh, during the fall when you're doing a lot of shows, you end up, uh, you're talking to somebody and, and you're going, I, I can't even remember the name of the quarterback of whatever team. I mean, the, so I, I think, I think it, it's just basic stuff. Just, just be better prepared. That's a good one. Uh, although maybe also care less about being perfect and then you'll feel more prepared all the time. <laughs> I, 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 I will take that one to heart. <laughs> Number eight, if you could play commissioner for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society had to adhere to? Uh, learn to shut up, um, <laughs> because I, maybe it's because I work uh, at ESPN, uh, where there are there is a bloviator on every corner. Um, <laughs> that I, I find people, especially in my industry, just can't be quiet. And here I go ranting and raving, and I probably but I find myself uh, just sometimes even myself like, why did I talk for three minutes? Um, you know, economize on words, uh, say less. Uh, and, 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 and quit trying to, uh, explain and equivocate everything. Okay. That's a good one. Number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Probably, uh, last year, my wife and I were in Florida and we went, we went para, what is it called? Parasailing. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden I'm up there going, what in the world did I just do? 
Um, I, I didn't want. I didn't want to do it. It was like for her birthday, and I, I, I said, there, "There's some guy uh, on a on a boat who's dragging us along as we're sailing. This guy, I don't know who he is. I mean, he may just cut the cord and and take our wallets. And and it was it was that's the most recent uh, moment of of just absolute fear. I'm going to need to make a request for whoever's listening and is good at Photoshop to Photoshop Paul Feinbaum parasailing because uh, I, the oh, visual... I've got a picture. I, okay, I can send I'm going to need you. you to send that to me because that's <laughs> that's magical. I can't wait to see it. Uh, number ten. What three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? He is kind. Mm, that's a good one. Um, the bonus listener question: Who would be your help hide a body call? Um, probably the, you know, you have to find somebody you can totally trust and, uh, that would be Laura Rutledge. Wow. Okay. That's, that's impressive. I thought maybe Saban's, you know, someone with a dark side. No, I I don't trust Saban. Um, (laughs) no, I mean, here's the problem. Uh, Saban, uh, we could be halfway there and he'd get a call from a recruit and leave me in the middle of the road with the body. That's so true. That's so true. Well, Laura Rutledge should should take that as the the ultimate compliment that um, she would she would have to grab the shovel. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I believe she would stick with me at least. <laughs> <laughs> that that is unless a get up call and lead her to the next day. <laughs> That's right. And finally, who would you recommend that I have on this podcast and talk to? Well, uh, you know, I, I think it depends on where you're going. I, I've, I've talked to a lot of interesting people, Sarah. And probably my favorite interview in a long time was Tim Cook, the mm. uh, CEO of Apple. Yeah. Uh, it took uh, – I, I know I'm going to give a long answer here to a short question. I happened to meet him uh, well, I was in Auburn, Alabama at a dinner and ended up hitting it off with his 12-year-old – at the time, 10-year-old nephew. And mm. uh, so I, I – I, I asked him for an interview. Uh, we were developing a new series on prominent alums. It took nine months. We finally did it, but it was, it was one of the most fascinating two days. He gave us a, a lot of time. And I, I just, I mean, partly because, uh, I mean, forget the fact that he's the head of one of the most important companies in the world, but he replaced one of the greatest legends in, in mm. business history in Steve Jobs. And he's, he's, and he's exceeded the expectations. So as a result of that, uh, he is always uh, – highest on my list of, of people worth talking to well i look forward to you putting me in touch with them so that i can make i uh, i just texted <laughs> him and he he blocked me <laughs> <laughs> um thank you so much this was so fantastic paul it was so great getting to know you better i really appreciate it sarah the pleasure was mine thank you very much that's what she said it's time once again for south bitch sessions where i rant about something that bothers me and i fix it this week taking pictures of strangers posting them to social media, and making fun of them. A friend was on a date with a guy not too long ago, had a great time with him, planned on going out again, and then she found his Instagram account. He had photos of elderly people, overweight people, children, for Pete's sake, that he was snapping in airports and restaurants and out in public and wherever he went. And he was mocking these complete strangers for any number of reasons while they were just going about their day. So I won't claim to be totally innocent here. I do remember vaguely that I snapped the shot of a guy at a Cubs beer patio who looked exactly like Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder. He had, like, the unbuttoned dress shirt, the receding hairline, the glasses. Like, he actually could have been attending a costume party as that Tom Cruise character. It was so perfect and so uncanny that I felt like I needed to post it. It was very funny, but it was also wrong. 
And none of us would want to be the subject of someone else's random social media insults and then all their followers chiming in. So just because we can take photos and videos of everything everywhere all the time doesn't mean we actually should. In fact, I think now more than ever when we are in short supply of empathy, we should remember how it would feel to happen to us next time we're tempted to take a photo of a stranger and share it with everybody and and need to actually think about whether we'd want the same done to us. Because one day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Especially because, in some cases, you might not even know what that stranger is going through, suffering from, afflicted by. Now, there are, of course, exceptions, which are these, but not limited to these. Funny dancers at music festivals, especially if they're covered in mud. Talented street musicians that you're just taking videos of because you're commending them on their talent. Drunken St. Patrick's goers who have already passed out in the street anytime before 10 a.m. because they need to learn that lesson. Also, anyone wearing a completely ridiculous, hilarious, over-the-top, impressive, creative costume for Halloween or tailgating or Christmas or whatever. Those people are asking for it, and they deserve the attention and the praise for their efforts, so feel free to, to snap away. Okay, feel good about what we accomplished here today. Be nice. Think of others. Have some empathy. If you must... Look at the person, giggle to yourself, perhaps mention it to your companion, but do not take a photo and spread the spite. There, I fixed it. If you've got a dilemma for the commish to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate and review and leave the dilemma in your review. I need some more listener dilemmas. I got some good ones that are coming at you next week, especially involving bathroom etiquette. That seems to be the thing that gets everyone raving. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 